Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Right now I'm listening to Tony Robbins' new book, Money Master the Game, Seven Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. Hello, Frank Conway here, and I'm so honoured and excited to have our featured guest, Robbie Butler, join us on Economic Rockstar. Hi, Robbie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Robbie Butler is a lecturer of economics at University College Cork in Ireland, where he lectures on a multitude of modules such as micro and macroeconomics, growth economics and corporate strategy. Robbie received his PhD from University of Hertfordshire in England, is published in a number of internationally renowned academic journals and is a regular contributor on media. Robbie's p- primary passion is in sports, namely football, and he is a junior international cap for Ireland. Robbie managed his, to bridge his passion for sports with his career in economics and along with his brother David and other colleagues created and runs the popular website sportseconomics.org. Robbie, I've given our listeners a little overview, so please take a moment to tell us about you personally. Uh, well, I suppose first of all, thanks for having me on, Frank. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. I should, should tell people that you know, I'm very fortunate. Not only do I, do I know you in this forum, but I also had the, the fortune of being lectured by you, um, being an undergraduate of WIT, um, I suppose that's where it all started for me in terms of economics and my, uh, I suppose the excitement I had in economics is the training I got from yourself and others in WIT. Um, and from there, I went to University College Cork and what I thought would be a, a one-year master's in economics has turned into, a, at the moment, a 10-year uh, career. Part of that journey has been uh, spent in England doing a PhD part-time um, under Professor Geoffrey Hodgson, um, and I've been very lucky to fall under the supervision of such a well-renowned, um, internationally recognised economist. Um, I'm still very much learning. I'm still very much learning about teaching and economics, and I think it's something uh, we all have to do is to try and develop ourselves and our, our understanding. And, and I hope, uh, I suppose, the conversation, the chat we have today um, can inspire others to get involved in a subject I, I love so much. Exactly, yeah, and you're making me so old there as well. Ah, well, to be um, fair, Frank, when you lectured us, you were about two years older than us, I think, <laughs> at most. So, uh, yeah. you know, you have nothing to worry about there. Could you just give me a, a quote or a mantra of philosophy or an, even a, an affirmation that you actually find very important or daring to you and how our listeners, um, particularly those with an economics interest, could actually apply this to their lives, be it their personal, academic or financial life? Yeah, I suppose uh, something I've learned along the way and it doesn't matter if you want to apply to your personal life or my study of economics or the sporting um, you know, activities that I've been engaged in is you know hard work is everything and you know nobody is born with an innate ability to do something um, and the harder you work the easier things become um, and that applies to college it applies to studying it applies to sport um, it applies to life in general um, and it's something I like to I suppose live by that if you do work hard you will get the returns um, it's not easy and people don't find it easy and you can find like, I mean, there's no shortcut anywhere worth going but if you're prepared to put in 
the hard yards. I mean, the payoff is there. And does it make it easier that you actually have brought on your passion for sports and football? Yeah, completely. That that actually happened quite naturally. It's not something I thought about because my PhD is in institutionals and macroeconomic growth. And that's something I'm very passionate about as well. It's something I teach. I don't teach sports economics. I said my PhD wasn't in it. It's something that I kind of dabbled in as a bit of fun um, for, you know, a couple of years. We had a couple of working papers and it's kind of grown from there into our, our website, which is now becoming more and more popular. And uh, I suppose we're getting into it more and having experience playing football in particular at I wouldn't call it a high level but you know a relatively competitive level um, it does help you because I suppose you understand football not just from a theoretical perspective but from the perspective of playing it as well um, and it's funny sometimes when people read about an economist talking about football or talking about sport they kind of dismiss you as oh well what would they know they're only an economist but well they find out that you know you've achieved something actually on the sporting field be it uh, with, we work with John Constant as you know down here John has you know, won in All Ireland with Cork. He's an All Star. Uh, I was fortunate enough to win a, uh, an, an FAI Junior Cup and uh, to be capped for the Irish international team. And when you tell people you've done these kind of things on the sporting field, it's almost like they they start to listen to you a bit more. It raises an eyebrow and it kind of almost draws a, a little bit more level of respect, I suppose, and, yeah. and what you're teaching and how you're getting the message across and. It's good for the student as well, or the learner that you were actually coming from two roles, I suppose, an economist and an, an athlete, a sports athlete, and you can merge those together and use those principles to kind of get your message across and deliver papers and really enjoy the work that you actually do. Yeah, I mean, completely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, it does give you that little bit of extra cre- credibility when you, you are talking to somebody that, you know, has tried to compete um, or has tried to perform at, a, as I said, not a high level, but, uh, you know, a relatively high level. And you, um, you, you mentioned John Considine there, and there's also other colleagues in your university. And I think it's very, very important that you actually mix with people who have, I suppose, a similar interest. Um, yeah, we're very fortunate in Cork that we kind of have a group of people that are interested in economics, but also interested in sport. Uh, we mentioned John, you mentioned my brother David uh, at the outset, and Declan Jordan is also here, and Declan is, is very much interested in sport, and John Eakins is here as well. And there are a number of colleagues from outside of the university that we've got to know throughout Ireland as well. But I suppose at an informal level, it's great to be able to just sit down over coffee and um, talk about Sport from say a sporting perspective, uh, ignoring the economics, and then maybe bringing in economic ideas. Um, and you know, some of our coffee meetings can be quite vicious, where people will, you know, completely dismiss what somebody is saying. Uh, but it's it's a good sounding board for ideas. And you know, sometimes we put stuff up on the the blog that we might post it in the, the drafts before it's published, and someone will read it and say, "Oh, look, I think you're way out there because of you know this is not true or that's not true or have you considered this?" So having that sounding board there uh, amongst colleagues is is really really good because um, they don't hold back. Uh, and particularly when you have a brother that works with you, <laughs> one thing you know about siblings and sibling rivalry is they they'll say things to you that most other people won't say to you. <laughs> so uh, you know, Dave is is he doesn't hold back when he's saying something, and if his big brother says or writes something that you know isn't one hundred percent sound, he'll tell me straight away. Well, that's great because that's your typical economists. You know, you're you're always going to be conflicting with one another. Hence, all the different theories and completely. Yeah. Who are your main influencers, past or present, that have helped shape your views and vision in your academic career? Or even your outlook in sports? 
I, I suppose it, there's two strands to that. One is what I call uh, my PhD work, and obviously my supervisor Jeff Hodgson was. Uh, I was so fortunate to fall under Jeff's wing, and uh, uh, Jeff is such a well-respected figure in the field of institutional economics uh, internationally. And um, recently, he set up the World Interdisciplinary Network. Um, sorry, World Institutional Network for Interdisciplinary Research. It's called Winner, um, and it had its first conference recently. And you have huge names at this. I mean globally recognized people. Um, Jeff is friends with some past Nobel laureates. So being supervised by Jeff was a, um, a fabulous experience because he, I suppose he uh, opened up a, a world of academics to me. Um, and, uh, you know, he's had a, a huge influence on the way I think. And, and I'm still doing research with him. And I'm going over to see him actually after Christmas and we're working on uh, stuff that's fallen out of my PhD. Um, so I suppose he's a, he's a, a very big influence on me. Uh, if I had to talk about, say, the material I've read, uh, part of my PhD was the work of Mansur Olson. Um, Mansur Olson was an American-Swedish uh, economist, but well, he was of Swedish origin, um, and he looked at the basically the logic of collective action in society. Um, particularly, he focused on the rise and decline of nations, which is this famous 1982 book. And I've read the majority of Olson's work, and I think uh, if I had to pick one economist, and it is quite difficult, but if I had to take pick one economist that influenced me more than any, um, it would be Mansur Olson. And I suppose I would recommend to any aspiring uh, economist, uh, undergraduate in particular, to pick up uh, the works of Mansur Olson and read about what he has to say because it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. From the sporting perspective, uh, obviously very different influences. The lads here in Cork are, are obviously a big influence on uh, how I think and what I write. Um, I was at a conference not so long ago, a month or so ago, um, in Antwerp, and I met some of the you know, most well-known names in the field of sports economics. Uh, I know you've interviewed Jade uh, recently, and it was great to meet him, but Stefan Szymanski was there, and Stefan is a household name in uh, in sports economics, and people like Rodney Fort, uh, Brad Humphreys, uh, and just to get an opportunity to talk to these people uh, was fabulous because I suppose they're what you aspire to be if you're going to be a sports economist. Uh, uh, they're multi-published um, in the area, and they're very, very well-respected. Recently, I had the pleasure to attend a lecture um, which you delivered a, a fascinating account of how you could actually use sports as a platform to um, study economics. And one, one thing that kind of stood out to me was a, a theory that you first identified known as multiple int- intelligence. Could you briefly explain this theory and how sports can be used to teach economics? Yeah, sure. Multiple intelligence is uh, based on the work of Howard Gardner. He's a Harvard educationalist. And um, Gardner in the 1980s and 1990s began to develop develop this theory of multiple intelligence. And so far, he's identified eight ways that we learn. And people um, develop their understanding of different concepts in different ways. So some people have very good um, spatial recognition. Um, They're not so good at, say, um, logical reasoning. Um, Other people are fantastic uh, musicians uh, or artists. Uh, Some people are very good numerically. Um, So because we all learn in very different ways, we need to teach in such a way that tries to capture uh, or tries to hit as many forms of uh, multiple intelligence theory as we possibly can. Um, So what we do with sports economics and how I I use that in WIT and must say how great it was to go back and talk to so many people is we take sport and we we use sport as the lens to view um, the economic world. And the great thing about sport is, well, first of all, so many people uh, know about it to begin with. So you're starting from uh, a position of power for the student. 
Uh, and secondly, there's an abundance of data. Uh, and when you're teaching economics or when you're doing economic research, uh, data is key. Uh, but lots of the data with sport is collected for us. And there's so many things that we can uh, analyze uh, in it from an economic perspective using the lens of sport. So in the talk in WIT, we looked at incentives and how people respond to incentives. And we had examples of football matches where uh, FIFA or UEFA, or in the case that we looked at, the Caribbean Football Federation changed the rules of the game um, and how uh, that changed the behavior of the players. Could um, you illustrate this concept for us? Yeah, what yeah. what happened was there was uh, a match in 1994 involving Barbados and Grenada and it was a qualification match for the knockout phase of the Caribbean Cup and prior to the game Barbados had to win 2-0 uh, to qualify so it seemed fairly straightforward but for some strange reason the Caribbean Football Federation decided to put in a strange kind of quirk to the rules and they said that if the game went to extra time assuming it was a draw goals scored in extra time would count double so with eight minutes to go, Barbados were winning 2-0, which is what was required, and they looked set to qualify. But then Grenada went and pulled the goal back to make it 2-1. So this gave Barbados a problem because they had to score again to advance. So they spent the remainder of the game trying to score a third goal to make the game 3-1 and were unsuccessful. So as the game almost reached its conclusion, they did what any rational economic agent would do, and they scored a deliberate own goal to make the game 2 all. And what this was going to do was force extra time uh, so that they would have an opportunity then to score again, and this goal would be count double, meaning they would win the game 4-2 in advance. So that rule change altered the incentives of the players. So whilst we would always think in a football match, the objective is to score into the opposition goal, in this instance, there was a greater payoff or a greater return uh, by scoring in your own goal. And what makes the story even more remarkable is when Grenada decided to centre off, there was two ways they could now qualify in normal time. One was to score a goal in the Barbados goal, but the other was to score an own goal. Either way, they'd win the match 3-2 or lose the match 3-2, which either way would have been enough for them to um, advance. So Barbados spent three or four minutes actually defending both goals, which is a remarkable scenario for anybody that watches football. And we believe it's the only time it happened. But it shows the power of incentives and how people will respond to incentives. Fantastic an analogy, a real-life analogy, really, how the underlying principles of economics, which is the incentives, can actually be played out on a football field. My previous guest, Ryan Blair, explained the concept of game theory in his personal life and how we could use that in the boardroom and also on the street. But you also could explain game theory in sports. Could you actually illustrate another point of how we could understand this concept in economics? Yeah, sure. Again, this is something I, I show the guys in, in WIT. You take the penalty shootout, uh, which is a, a fabulous illustration of the volunteer's dilemma. Nobody really wants to take a penalty in a shootout. Well, very few players do, but somebody has to do it. And the reason it's such a fabulous lens to watch game three too is because game theory is about strategic decision making. So you are making a decision based on what you anticipate somebody else to do. Uh, so in the case of the penalty taker you know they want to place a penalty in such a way as the goalkeeper doesn't save it the goalkeeper's decision on where to dive is based on where they anticipate a player to kick 
uh, the ball. Uh, so there's a couple of really great stories. One is from the Champions League in 2008, which you can read in Stefan Szymanski's wonderful Soccernomics, where prior to the game, Abram Grant had collected information on where the Manchester United goalkeeper Edwin van der Sar would dive. Uh, he was given the information by an Israeli economist and friend. And if you watch the penalties from 2008, you will see that every Chelsea player, with the exception of Nicola Anelka, who misses, kicks the ball to van der Sar's left. And prior to Anelka's kick, you can see van der Sar pointing to that side as if to try and um, psych Anelka out. And he, he ultimately changes his mind and the penalty is saved. So that's, I suppose, the first wonderful illustration. The second is a story I told, again, from Soccernomics, uh, where it is the, the longest penalty ever, where a match is abandoned in injury time due to a riot and a penalty had just been awarded. So the Football Association involved in this match decided to replay the match the following week, but only the segment of the match remaining would be, um, would be played. So you have a player that has a week to think about where he's going to hit a penalty. Uh, and prior to the, the game, or in the week leading up to the game, the goalkeeper that was about to uh, face the penalty met with the president of his club. Um, and the president tried to help him by telling him that he knew where the penalty taker was going to, to kick the ball. And the goalkeeper responded by saying he knew. He knew. And the president was happy and said, well, well, great, dive to that side. But the goalkeeper retorted that, no, I can't, because he knows that I know. Yeah. Um, and the president then said, oh, well, we have a problem. And the keeper's response to that was, well, no, no, he doesn't know that I know he knows. Yeah, yeah. So, again, a fabulous uh, illustration of, of that volunteer's dilemma and strategic interaction. Economics really is pretty much in every aspect of our lives. And it's just a matter of identifying and being able to explain and relate a concept to an event or an occurrence like the way you have just outlined there and another great thing that you actually do and i see it on your blog is that not only do you bring in sports into economics but you look at the simpsons and the sports elements within the simpsons to explain economic concepts and i think this is all down to john constantine's uh, chapter in the book homer economicus that has recently been released he has a chapter in there and you're putting out blogs to explain these concepts that are relevant uh, through the simpsons and it's they've done very very well done and quite intelligently in the, in the, these episodes have you got an example of a sport yeah i, I think you've you said something really uh, interesting there that you know you can identify economic concepts in everyday life and i think that's a challenge for us as educators to do that because looking at something theoretical or cold in a textbook can be quite difficult for a 17, 18, 9 year old undergraduate to to conceptualise. But if you can show it to them in the real world, in their everyday life, you can make them understand this, I suppose fall in love with this subject. Yeah, John takes the credit for The Simpsons. John was a part of a, a book, Homer Economicus, which Joshua Hall in the US has, has written or, or, or edited, kind of brought together on The Simpsons and economics. And it's a, it's a fabulous piece of work. And again, I'd recommend anybody interested in The Simpsons and or economics to, to go and buy it and read it. We're working on a paper at the moment, as you mentioned, using the, economic, uh, using the Simpsons to teach sports economics. And uh, if anybody watches The Simpsons, you'll see that there's uh, umpteen sporting references and many, many different sports addressed in The Simpsons, from miniature golf to bowling to boxing. I think you just think of a boxing example, which people might recall, is where Homer has to fight Dredrick Tatum, who's just been released from prison. And I think it's, the parody is that it's supposed to be Don, Don King and Mike Tyson at the time um, but if, if you recall the episode the reason that he wants Homer to, to fight Dredrick Tatum is the fact that Tatum can't find anybody that can go more than three rounds with him um, so we have an element of competition 
And this is very much the case with Mike Tyson in the 1980s, that nobody, particularly in his early career, nobody could go any sort of distance with him. So the fights became boring and uncompetitive. So it harks to the, the issue of competition. So they wanted Homer to stand there and fight Tatum, despite the fact he wasn't going to win. Um, but they felt that, or the promoter felt that there would be some element of competition. The Simpsons also do wonderful parodies on government funding for sports stadiums and sports projects and um, the funding or the public funding of sports stadiums in the US is something that receives uh, quite a bit of attention. Yeah, uh, especially, well, sorry, no, Robbie. You're it's right. Especially at college level, you know, the stadiums are phenomenal in terms of the amount of money that's being put into these uh, football fields over the last 10 years. They've really grown exponentially and I just wonder where all the money's coming from. Yeah, I mean, the, the attendance at college football games in the States is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you could have 100,000 people at a college football game. Uh, so you need a stadium that can, can, can take that. And as I said, America is quite different to Europe in that regard, that many of these stadiums are, are built using public funds. It seemed to bestow prestige, um, honour on host cities. But whether or not it's value for money is highly questionable. In fact, if you look at the research that's done in this area, is it, you know, whether or not there's a multiplier whether or not it generates large amounts of income is highly debatable but they continue to do it they continue to, to build these these stadiums and the simpsons provide a wonderful example of this where mr burns goes and uh, he wins a, a basketball team called the austin celtics he moves them to springfield changes the name again something you'd see in american sport with franchises moving across the country proceeds to build a state-of-the-art stadium but he, he gives a wonderful quote as he's opening the stadium i can't remember it exactly but he says something along the lines of it's the, the billionaire's dream building up a, a stadium for the, the rich and powerful using public funds so that's something that is very much you know an american phenomenon just sticking with that team of sports stadiums and so on i have a question from a listener john joseph ryan from ireland if you don't mind me i am no no, no not um, at all I, i'll actually read a word for word as a quotation we see in recent times entrepreneurs buying up clubs in the english premier league and often amassing massive debt and then often leaving the club behind in difficulty. However, if you compare the English Premier League to the Bundesliga, which with often highest attendances at games in Europe, where the clubs are owned by the fans with usually 51% plus of shares owned, 50% of its turnover goes on players' wages, compared to the English Premier League's 70% of turnover going on wages. In the 08-09 season, the Bundesliga had a $225 million profit margin over the Premier League's $125 million. Where's the attraction and return on investment for such investors in the English Premier League? And why aren't they buying out more shares in clubs with a more profitable league, such as the Bundesliga? That's a very good question. It's mouthful. Uh, yeah, it is a mouthful. It is a worry for the Premier League, I think, that so much of the revenue that currently comes into the Premier League is based on television rights. And I was at a talk recently with Austin Houlihan and Austin works for the sports division with Deloitte in the UK and he illustrated some fabulous data on where different money is generated from different elements of the game and he was able to compare the Bundesliga with uh, the Premier League. I'm not sure if it's as clear cut with this fan ownership because I think if you dig into the fan ownership in Germany it's not maybe as admirable as we might like to think. Uh, it's not 
you know your average season ticket holder that is i suppose in control of what these clubs are doing if you compare say revenue in the premier league with the bundesliga the revenue in the premier league is around 3 billion whereas revenue in the bundesliga is just over 2 billion so there's a billion more generated in revenue in uh, the premier league and maybe this is the reason that the foreign investor or the foreign investors st- are still more attracted to the premier league over the bundesliga i mean ultimately they don't they want to make money and making money is the bottom line for them. Success is secondary to that. If they can get success as a consequence, that's fabulous. I think just to, I suppose, go back to the point, why aren't more people moving to the Bundesliga? Maybe that will happen because the Premier League seems to have all the hallmarks of a bubble to me. Um, it's year after year after year of growth. What if the television rights, which have been rising exponentially through the years in 1992 the domestic broadcast deal was sold for 43 million pounds last year it was 1.1 billion now what if sky or bt or some other company pay over the odds uh, in a year or two years time run into difficulty and then can't pay the clubs this money it happened with itv digital in the late 90s early noughties and it had huge repercussions for teams in the lower divisions so i think that is a worry for the premier league when you compare it to the bundesliga and if it's a bubble and the bubble pops where is that going to leave the likes of Chelsea and Man City and Liverpool and United and so on, who are very much reliant on this uh, this broadcast money? The, the growth, the exponential growth, as you mentioned, they're putting huge valuations year on year on these clubs. And in order to be in the top part of that particular league, clubs have to pay big money for players who might get them to that <laughs> level. And the pressure is on. And then you might have wealthy individuals that would see these football clubs as a way of getting involved in something that they might have always dreamed about. And and in the future, they might see this as a payoff and they might make money based on the capital appreciation of the club. Completely. I think you hit the nail on the head there. If you buy a club for 100 million in three or four years time, you can sell it for 150 million. Well, you know, the winner is the person that bought the club. They may have saddled a lot of debt on the club, uh, which in the case of Manchester United, when the Glazers bought Manchester United, it was debt free. When they sell it, it will not be debt free. If I recall rightly, I think it cost them something like half a billion pounds about a decade ago to buy Manchester United. And it's valued at nearly three times that now. So that's a fabulous investment. If you look at the, the where the salaries and the increase in salaries, say if you look at the last ten years, the gap between the revenue that the clubs are generating um, and the salaries they're paying has actually widened. So that's a positive. Now they both obviously increased, but the gap is widening between what the club is re- generating in revenue and what they're paying out in wages. The operating profits are remaining relatively constant. Some clubs, uh, and I say some, I mean a minority, maybe four to five clubs, will turn over a profit annually. The vast majority of them won't. But it's in or around 80, 85 million. And it's been in or around that figure for the past six, seven years. And are there salary caps on players in the English Premier League? No, that's something that's not or hasn't been introduced into the Premier League. Whether or not it it comes here is another thing. It's something that makes, again, European soccer different to sports in in the US. It's very much laissez-faire economics. Again, it's often something I wonder about is that Europe tends to be traditionally more socialist in in general terms. Okay, When you compare it to the US, where the US tends to be more capitalist but when you look at the sporting structures uh, Europe tends very much to go for this laissez-faire approach where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and America on the other hand seems to have a, a, the opposite, a very much a socialist approach. You think of the, the draft 
where the worst team gets to pick the best player. Um, so there's a sense of almost trying to even things out. And I often think it's, it contrasts with the general economic beliefs of people living in Europe and people living in America. And it, always, it often makes me wonder why it is the opposite to what you would expect. There's a rule at the moment in the English Premier League in which uh, clubs have to meet a certain profit margin. And if they don't, they're going to be penalised in the following season. Yeah, the financial fair play rules came in last year and they have had some success because Manchester City have been have been fined and Paris Saint-Germain have been fined uh, and what the financial fair play rules are about is making sure that clubs aren't running uh, an excessive loss. Now, it's still okay to run a loss. Um, I suppose it's a little bit like the 3% debt to GDP ratio that uh, you can't go over with in terms of a budget deficit. So you can still run a deficit but it can't be above a certain amount. Um, but it is forcing clubs to sell some players and it is constraining them in terms of who they can buy in now I suppose the worry here is that as time goes by clubs are going to get clever and they're going to figure out ways and how they can increase turnover be it through uh, you know clever uh, marketing clever sponsorship deals and so on um, and if they do that well then they can raise the amount or they can raise the, the lower bound as to how much they can spend on players and how much they can spend on player salaries but I think to be fair to UEFA they are trying to tackle the problem and have had some success. Ultimately, I think, you know, if you're only going to punish clubs by hitting them in the pocket, you know, some of the very wealthy owners will have no problem paying it. If you really want to hurt a club, well, then dock them points. The argument has been made, and I suppose I would say this being a Liverpool fan, that if Manchester, you know, Manchester City broke the rules last year, why weren't they dock points? True. And if they had been docked points, well, then Liverpool arguably could have been champions at the Premier League. Now, that would really hurt them. Uh, whereas if you hit them in the pocket, what's it, what's it really going to do? And that almost brings us full circle based on the, the whole economic principle of incentives. If, Compl- it's, you, if you're willing to break the rules and only be fined in monetary terms, then it's worth breaking those rules. Yeah. Completely, and I didn't even think of that. It's great that you, you made that connection. Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, especially if you're a sheikh and you know, he, he's, he's, an, he's a multi-billionaire, so a couple of million quid or whatever it is is, is small money to him um, whereas winning the Premier League title bestows huge honour on him you know, he'll be a hero forevermore in the blue part of Manchester yeah I think if if the punishment were to fit the crime um, I think you'd see clubs change a hell of a lot faster and to contrary to that is in Italy where Lazio were relegated based on its points and ended up the following season at a lower level with minus 11 uh, for breaking rules I'm sure I'm ready with that with Lazio am I? Yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with the Lazio case, or but you're. So, uh, I'm so, I'm so, yeah, it was. I was thinking, was it Juventus? Juventus yeah, it was Juvent, so. Juventus. I think there was some corruption involving match fixing and so on, and yeah. and they punished Juventus and severely punished them. And for such a, a well-known, I suppose, a marquee club, uh, I believe the most successful club in Italy, uh, and they were punished and they were they were sent down a division. Now it didn't hold them back because they've been champions. I believe the last three years in Italy, but they were punished. If you saw that, you probably would see a change of ways. Glasgow Rangers are an example, I suppose, yeah. closer to home. And you look at what's happened Glasgow Rangers over the last uh, three to four years, and they've been severely punished. And they're still reeling from the effects. And despite the fact that they're now in the championship, which is the second tier in Scotland, and uh, will probably be promoted this season. Uh, you can be damn sure the people in control of Glasgow Rangers will manage the finances you know, far more prudently uh, in the future. Uh, because the punishment was so severe. Just coming off the subject on the sports and so on, and back to yourself personally, can you share one of your personal habits that you strongly believe contributes to how you might get things done? 
I suppose from from a teaching perspective, I, you know, I, something I find as a teacher is I, I constantly try and update the material that I teach because I find they go stale very quickly. And in terms of a research perspective and trying to get research done, that doesn't always sit well with that. Now, I try and incorporate the research into my teaching, particularly with the sports economics and getting stuff, you know, out there and potentially published. But you know, I think, and I, I, I'd advise that to anybody that's teaching, be it undergrad or postgrad or whatever, is you know to try and keep the material as current as they possibly can. Not even for the sake of the student, for the sake of yourself, that uh, you do go stale and you know it does become routine and quite monotonous. And to avoid that, to escape that, to try and you know keep keep stuff sharp. Do you still do some level of exercise and fitness as well? That kind oh, yeah. of your brain active and oh, oh completely we, we regularly go to the gym uh, <laughs> i'm not playing soccer as much as i'd like to but i think you know I, i'm at the, the ryan Giggs part of my career at this stage where, Yoga, uh, is it? yeah well not quite i think uh stuff that used to uh used to be easy for me is not as easy it used to be and i remember being a younger footballer and you know looking at older players and thinking you know what'd be wrong with them you know needing three and four days rest after a match and I wish I could uh, I could go back there now and you know tell myself you know don't be so hard on them because yeah you get to a point in your career where things that you used to be able to do easily as I said don't come as easy. You mentioned a number of books already Mansur Olson's and uh, Joshua Hall's is there any other book that you'd re- like to recommend to our listeners? I suppose there's so many that I, I, I think I could. I suppose if I was, say, giving a general economics book for somebody that was new in the subject or just listening and didn't know much about economics, I think there's a book that was written in the late 90s um, by, I suppose, economic historian David Landes called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. And I think it's a, a fabulous starting point for anybody that wants to start thinking about economics and growth and institutions and so on. I suppose I want to bring it up to, to today. One of the most impressive books I've read recently is Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And this is sort of Kahneman's life work congested into a three, four hundred page book. And it's fascinating stuff. Um, and I think if people read Thinking Fast and Slow, it, it will develop your mind and it will make you more adept at, at making decisions. That's all about the system one and system two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you have you read it? I have the book. I yeah. haven't started reading it. Yeah, but it's I fabulous. It. Yeah, it's absolutely fabulous. And he tells you what system one is. And, you know, it's very much the old part of the brain, the instinctive reactions. And system two is where I suppose, the logical, rational decision making goes on. And we all have a habit of you know, operating on system one. And what you want to try and do is train the mind to get on to, to system two. And I actually see a post right here now on your own website, sportseconomics.org. If anyone decides to go on it, Look up Simpsonomics on the right column. Yeah, it's, it's all there. Money Bart, the Simpsons and Sabermetrics when Lisa actually manages Bart's local baseball team and applies the System 1 and System 2 uh, model and applies a more of a rational perspective on the game in terms of the the number of outs and bashing and so on. The, all those metrics that are quite... Useful, useful very, in baseball, yeah, baseball yeah. yeah. Dave wrote that post, I believe. Uh, yeah. That's a play on Money Bart is a play on Money Ball, which is yeah. maybe a book or a Michael Lewis's book that you might have read. Again, fabulous book if, if listeners want to, to, to pick it up and read it. Uh, if they haven't read it, they might have seen the movie with Brad Pitt. Uh, and the movie is about Billy Bean. And Billy Bean was the general manager of the Oakland A's. And he turned a fairly mediocre baseball team uh, into a team that was challenging in the playoffs. And he did it on a shoestring. And he, he selected players not based on a name or something they'd say maybe uh, made them attractive in the past. But he, he looked at statistics and, you know, how many home runs they made, uh, how many bases they could get, get to, how many, you know, how many times they, they, they were out. And he managed to 
pick players um, that were lot a lot cheaper than we'll say the marquee players that clubs like uh, New York uh, Yankees or the Boston Red Sox were picking and turned Oakland A's uh, into a relatively successful baseball team. And I, I don't think that can really apply to soccer or UK football because Andre Villabos would have been the equivalent to Billy Bean, I think, when Burrs brought him on and it just didn't work out for him. Yeah, that's a good point. That that's, the AVB was seen as, yeah, that he was trying to play it on paper. And it's a good point that you make. But statistics are certainly becoming more important in football. There's no doubt about that. I think maybe the, the difference is that if you take a game like baseball, it's the the play is very much phased. So it happens in, 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 in bursts where, you know, the pitch happens, you know, somebody swings. If they hit it, they, they run. If they don't hit it, they generally stay put. And then the game stops again. Uh, and then another phase happens whereas football is generally more fluid it's happening all the time it's up and down and so on so I often think just intuitively is it more difficult then to, to apply that obviously I know baseball is a team sport but some of the or I suppose some of the interaction is very done very much done at an individual level um, a bit like cricket where you have an individual bowling or an individual pitching to another individual yeah. whereas in, in football it tends to move um, more together, mm. uh, if, if you know what I mean. The interaction tends to be more together. But again, that's only anecdotal. Um, and there's nothing to suggest why somebody couldn't deploy Sabre metrics to football and do it quite successfully. Do you have a favourite internet resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? Obviously, I'd have to say our, our own website, <laughs> sportseconomics.org. I suppose from an, an Irish economic perspective, we're very fortunate that Seamus Coffey works here with us in the school. And Seamus has become quite well known over the past number of years for his analysis of the Irish economy. And mm. Seamus has a, a website called Economic Incentives. And anybody that's interested in general state of the Irish economy, I strongly recommend that you go and read it. I, I think, and I, I don't say this lightly, it is the best resource on the general Irish economy out there. Uh, I think it beats anything out there. Do you have any one takeaway that would, you would like early economic rockstars listeners to leave with that can improve their approach to maybe economics? Some of the books I mentioned there, if, if, if they read any of those books, I think it'll, it'll develop their understanding a bit of institutions or growth or decision-making or sport. Um, mm. So I, I recommend they do that. But I suppose, like I said, it's that hard work, particularly when you're studying a subject like economics, goes an awful long way. And, and hopefully, I suppose, what we spoke about today is inspire people to take up the subject or, or think more about it. Most definitely. Robbie, thank you so much for being so inspiring for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot from you. You can find all the links and resources mentioned by Robbie on economicrockstar.com. I will link up maybe the YouTube example of the Champions League penalty shootout also for viewers to look at and see the game theory anecdote that Robbie actually referred to. Sure, and as I said, if you want to read more on that, Soccernomics is the, is the place to find it. Robbie, you are an economic rockstar. Thanks very much, Frank. Thank you for being so generous with your time. 